you. Thank you, Deacon Jinwei. Allow me to continue from verse 18, right? Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Have, did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Thank you so much, Siuling, uh, for leading uh, songs, and uh, Deacon Jinwei for leading the service. Now, today, if you want to follow the sermon, the best way is to keep your Bibles open to where we just finished reading. We're in Genesis chapter 28 and 29. And also in the e-bulletin, you can follow me through the, uh, the, the outline in the e-bulletin. I think that we can all agree that 2020 has been a very different year, right? It's been a year of disruptions. It's been a year of cancellations. It's been a year of isolation. But for many, 2020 has also been a year of reorientation. Companies and bosses who once argued against flexible working hours and telecommuting, they have been forced to do so during circuit breaker or lockdowns all over the world. Surveys conducted locally and around the world found that many workers are now reluctant to return to the office. Right? So can I just see a show of hands? How many have actually returned to office? Okay, quite, quite a number, about 50-50. And schools pushed all their curriculum online with home-based learning as students, teachers, and parents had to make adjustments. Churches pushed our services online as well. And you may not remember, but it was only just about four weeks ago that we resumed hybrid services with some of us continuing to stream from home while others, like you, right, you, you make the effort to come down and meet on-site. So I really want to commend you for making the effort today. All of us have learned to reorientate our whole lives around COVID, although some of us may have struggled a bit more during this period. For many of us, it was also a time for our lifestyle reorientation, 
right? There's been more time to exercise, so I see a lot of you slimming down, right? less eating out, and perhaps more sleep. The question is, will this reorientation with this new lifestyle continue <clears throat> as our life gradually resumes and we settle into the new normalcy? Or will we regress? Will we go back to the bad habits once again? Why is this reorientation essential? Why reflect on the direction of our lives? In the early hours of the 21st of July this year, the Japanese cargo ship, the Wako Shio, left Singapore for South Africa. And it adjusted costs on that day, on the 21st of July, by just less than 5 degrees. This change, although it was minute, it was for no apparent reason and highly irregular. Veering off the usual shipping route in the Indian Ocean, the Wakashio collided into the coral reefs of Mauritius just four days later on Sunday, 25th of July. And the oil spill that resulted has been called the worst environmental disaster in Mauritius. It killed dozens of whales and dolphins. It cost millions and millions of dollars of, lo of losses to its fishing and tourism industries. Not to mention the irreparable damages to the endangered corals and other marine life. We all need God's reorientation of our lives ever so often, all the time. Because without this reorientation and correction, your life and my life can also go off course with drastic consequences. In Genesis 28, verse 10 to 29, verse 30, we see God reorienting Jacob's life as it was going off course. God reorientated Jacob's life by revealing himself and rebuking his sins. And now God can do the same reorientation for us as well by his son, the Lord Jesus, redeeming us. So that's the outline. Where are we now in our survey of Genesis? Well, just before this, in Genesis 27, Jacob had conspired with his mother, Rebekah, to cheat his brother Esau of his father's blessing as the firstborn. And this is in addition to his earlier scam in Genesis 25, where he bought Esau's precious birthright for a, for a bowl of cheap stew. So now Esau was furious at Jacob. And he said in chapter 27, verse 36, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me this two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. He thought to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I'll kill my brother Jacob. So now being warned of this threat by his mother, Jacob was on the run from Esau under the pretext of seeking a wife for himself. So we pick up the story from chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. 
Now, where is this certain place? It is unnamed here because of its insignificance. We are only told later in verse 19 that the name of the city was loose at the first, but Jacob would call, it, would call the name of that place Bethel. It was certainly no Shangri-La or MBS hotel, but Jacob had to stay there for the night because it was not safe to travel after sunset. And so he took one of the stones of that place, a random stone that was large enough to serve as his headrest and laid down to sleep. I don't know about you, but for me, it's very hard to fall asleep in a new place. Right? I might toss and turn for hours before I sleep. What's more in the open and with a hard stone as headrest? But we know a secret. If you have been through your local lab, you've been through national service, there is a secret. Right? We know that we can sleep anytime, anywhere, once we put on the uniform. It's a sure cure for insomnia. Whether it's out in the field, in the three tunnel, or even I heard some people fall asleep on the route march. Jacob also fell asleep, fast asleep. Perhaps from the physical and mental exhaustion of traveling and escaping from Esau. And in verse 12, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Notice that there were three things that Jacob beheld or saw. First, there was a ladder, or more likely, it was a stairway that was set up on the earth, which is with its top reaching to heaven. And this is perhaps similar to the Mesopotamian temple towers called the Zikruats. The ziggurats were made of mud and straw bricks. They were glued together by bitumen. And this one in the photo here, in the picture here, it was restored by Saddam Hussein in the 1980s. It was originally built as a temple to Nana, the moon god. And stairways around it allowed the worshippers to ascend to the small shrine on top and offer their sacrifices. A ziggurat is perhaps what the builders of the Tower of Babel were attempting in Genesis 11 as they tried to build what is called a tower with its, tops in the, in, with its top in the heavens in order to reach God. But in the end, over there in Genesis 11, God himself had to come down to see the tower, which exposes the futility of all human attempts to reach heaven. Here, however, we have this stairway that was provided by God himself the second thing he beheld, behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on this stairway. It acts as a connection point between heaven and earth. This was Jacob's conclusion as he woke up in verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. See, this nondescript place suddenly becomes to him Bethel, the house of God, where God dwells with people. It is called the gate of heaven, the contact point between heaven and earth. The third thing that Jacob beheld was God himself. The Lord stood above it, the stairway, or he could also read the Lord stood beside him, Jacob. And this is what the Lord said, 
to Jacob in verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Notice how God introduced himself to Jacob. He is the Lord, Yahweh, the God who made a covenant with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. This covenant continues even now with Jacob as his new chosen covenant partner. Now, how do we know that certain books and movies are part of a series? Well, quite likely they, they would contain similar characters and themes, or at least references to past characters, right? So, for example, the Star Wars cinematic saga finally came to an end this year with the rise of Skywalker. I know it's a controversial film, it's divided fan opinion as to whether it was a worthy conclusion to the whole so-called Skywalker saga. And the whole saga began the year I was born. Okay, so now you can go and find out my age. Many notice that there are echoes in each trilogy or, or key themes in the, in the series, like courage, sacrifice, and the redemption of a Skywalker. Notice God's promises to Jacob here. Land in verse 13, people in verse 14, and blessing also in verse 14. And these are echoes of the same promises which he made to Abraham and Isaac beginning from Genesis 12. And God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 onwards, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count, can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the land, the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Now, if you put the two side by side, you will notice that God was really repeating phrases to show the continuity of his covenant with Abraham. And we will hear the same echoes as well in God's promises to Isaac in Genesis 26. This is kind of a trilogy, right? But unlike the Star Wars saga, these themes don't weaken, right? It doesn't divide people, but rather they are amplified over time as they head toward fulfillment. So how did Jacob respond to God's revelation of himself, his affirmation of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and now with him? We read in verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the, the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. See, by taking this stone and setting it upright and pouring oil on it, Jacob was anointing it, 
or consecrating it as a marker for that place. It's like the millstones that used to mark Singapore roads since the 1840s. And these were usually placed a mile apart, starting from the general post office along Singapore River. Okay, so which mile do you stay on? Jacob was likely marking this place for himself for the day when he will return in the future and has to locate it. And in verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, Jacob's words here may sound like he's telling God that if God will be present with Jacob to provide for him and to protect him until he returns safely, then the condition, right? Then in return for this presence and protection, Jacob would then, number one, worship God. Number two, build a temple at Bethel for God. And number three, give a full tenth or a tithe of all that God gave him. Now, if that's the case, then Jacob sounds quite transactional, quite tentative about his allegiance to God, right? If you bless me, then I will worship you. But actually, this sounds like many of us, right? Certainly, it sounds like me. If you will bless me, God, then I will worship you and I will give you these things. But we should note, firstly, that Jacob was actually asking here for what God had already promised him in verse 15, where God said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God was the one who first promised his presence provision and protection. So Jacob wasn't pulling this out of the hat and demanding this on his own. Secondly, because of the versatility of the Hebrew conjunctions or the connecting words here, Jacob's vow could and probably should be read in this way. Right? So this is a reworking of the verse. It says, if, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and I come again to my father's house in peace, and the Lord shall be my God, then this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Can you see the difference? It's rather subtle and yet it's significant. Right? So if we read it this way, Jacob wasn't withholding his allegiance to God. He wasn't making it conditional to God's presence, provision, and protection. Rather, he's reaffirming God's promises, including his commitment to be the God of Jacob, just as he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. So then, Jacob's obligations are only found in verse 22. He would first build a place of worship for God, and second, give a tithe to him. And the first of this, to build a place of worship, he would fulfill in Genesis 35. And the second is possibly fulfilled in his gift, his presence to Esau in Genesis 33. 
But we see here that allegiance to God was never an option, nor in question. Not for Jacob, and certainly shouldn't be for us either. We don't worship God only because he gives certain things to us. It is what we owe him rightfully. So Jacob had his life reoriented by these two self-revelations of God. The second time was at Penel, as he was returning to Canaan in Genesis 32. But the first time here at Bethel, the first time that Jacob met God, he was leaving Canaan. And God was beginning to reorientate his life by revealing himself, promising his covenant presence, provision, and protection. And thus begins the transformation of Jacob from he who deceives to he who prevails by the end of his journey. As with Jacob, God also begins to reorientate our lives by revealing himself to us, not necessarily by dreams and visions, but certainly always through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the next part of the narrative in Genesis 29, God continues to reorientate Jacob's life by rebuking his sins. In verse 1, having left Bethel, we read that Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Jacob finally reached Padan Aram, the, the land of the people of the east, where Haran was located. And remember that there were three beholds in Genesis 28. Well, we have got three parallel beholds here in Genesis 29. Jacob saw three more things. And the first behold is untranslated in our English versions, but verse 2 actually says, And he saw, and behold, a well in the field. And this well was a large watering hole from which the flocks were watered. But the stone on the well's mouth was so large that it took the collective efforts of the shepherds to roll it away and to put it back again. The second thing Jacob saw was also in verse 2. Behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside the well. And Jacob said to them, of course, he said to the shepherds, not the sheep. He wasn't that delirious from the long journey. He said to the shepherds, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. See, God had brought Jacob all the way from Canaan, this 900 miles to Padan Aram. And who were the first people he met? Some shepherds from Haran who knew his uncle Laban. This was so clearly God's providential blessing to Jacob. Moreover, Jacob told them in verse 7, It is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. See, it is not yet time to knock off. So why were these shepherds slacking off at the well? It is divine slacking for this very divine encounter with Jacob. So a possible lesson here. Perhaps we need to learn to slack more. I mean, spend more time hanging around the water coolers in school, in the office, even at church. Right? And you never know whom you might meet at a well. It's a hint especially for the singers who are looking out. Right? Well, this certainly worked for Jacob since his third beholding was the very person he had come all this way for. As Jacob was asking after Laban, 
the shepherds told him that he's well, and see, behold, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And there was Rachel with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. It is now time for Jacob to shine. As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Here is another stone. That large stone the shepherds needed to move as a group. Jacob supernaturally rolls it away single-handedly and he starts watering the flock of his uncle Laban without Rachel having to ask. I wonder whether Jacob was flexing on Rachel here. After all, unlike his father Isaac, who had a servant to search for his wife, taking along all sorts of choice gifts and ten of his master's camels, Jacob had nothing. Rather than testing the prospective wife by asking her to water the camels, Jacob tries to impress Rachel by watering her flock. Whether it was the servants and Rebecca in Genesis 24 or Jacob and Rachel here, it was God who providentially led the seeker to the right woman and brought him success. But unlike the pious servants, we don't yet see Jacob praying or seeking guidance from God. He was still relying on his own wits and his own effort. In verse 11, we see a joyous reunion. As Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Everything seems to be going well so far for Jacob. Right? There was a quick introduction by, by Rachel, a warm welcome and generous hospitality by Laban. But Jacob's search for a wife wasn't going to be as smooth sailing as he thought, or as we thought. Like those Taiwanese soap opera that I watch every week at my parents' home, it runs for hundreds of episodes, right? So there must always be that twist to keep the story going. There must be always the introduction of a new character. Right? So in verse 15, then Laban said to, to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? See, from my bone and my flesh to my kinsman, and now Jacob was asking Sorry, Laban was asking Jacob to serve him for wages or to be a hired servant. This was certainly a downgrade, a severe downgrade in relationship. And the narrator then introduces Laban's two daughters. There was one more daughter in verse 16. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Leah's eyes were weak, Right? This doesn't mean that she needs to wear glasses, that she was short-sighted. More likely, her eyes lacked that sparkle that's usually associated with beauty. Or maybe it reads, Leah was soft to the eye, meaning she was not visually attractive. 
Rachel, on the other hand, was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved Rachel. Like most men, Jacob was attracted to Rachel's outward beauty and probably didn't cast a second look at Leah. He stated his terms to, to Laban in verse 18. I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. The cunning Laban didn't outrightly agree, but he stated rather ambiguously, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. So Jacob served Laban for seven years, but to him it was Rachel he was serving for. So those seven years seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. At the end of the seven years then, Jacob demanded his wages from Laban. In verse 21, Give me my wife that I may go in to her, for my time is completed. It's a very bold request to ask your father-in-law. And the wily old Laban did a slay of hand. Right? He threw a lavish wedding feast by day so that people would know that Jacob had married his daughter. He couldn't get out of it anymore. But by night, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob after he probably had too much to drink and he went in to lie with her. And we read in verse 25, Jacob got the shock of his life as in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? What is this you've done to me? We've actually heard this a few times now, right? Always from the mouths of those who were deceived. So Pharaoh first said it to Abraham in Genesis 12, then Abimelech to Abraham in Genesis 20, and then Abimelech to Isaac in chapter 26, verse 10. But now it was Abraham and Isaac's descendants, Jacob, who was saying it to Uncle Laban. And the cunning Laban replied to him, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Citing custom and convention, Laban justifies his deception and he offers him Rachel, who's simply known as the other, in return for another seven long years of service. And Jacob must wait until the end of the week-long feast, the wedding feast, before Laban gave him Rachel also as wife. Verse 30 tells us, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So in total, Jacob served Laban 14 years for his beloved Rachel. And what do you think Jacob learned from all this? Notice again his words to Laban in verse 25. Why then have you deceived me? Right? It's the same word that, that uh, Isaac would use of Jacob. Jacob was the one who cheated his brother Esau of his first birthright as firstborn end of his father's blessing. And now the deceiver has been deceived. The table has been turned. Such irony and such poetic justice. Next, notice also Laban's words to Jacob in verse 26. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. 
Instead of the counterpart to younger, which would be older, Laban called Leah the firstborn. It was the firstborn's birthright and blessing that Jacob cheated from his, from his brother. And now it is the right of the firstborn to be married first that cheated Jacob of seven years of his life. Jacob's sin had caught up with him at last. And perhaps it was the realization of this that left Jacob utterly speechless at Laban's deceit. Clearly, God was teaching Jacob a lesson here by the deception of Laban. Jacob's life was being reoriented by God by the rebuking of a sin of deception. There was a case last year where a local female teacher was approached. She was approached on an, an online dating app by a man to help him to transfer $50,000 from Singapore to Malaysia. Right? He didn't want the money trail to point to himself because he had cheated someone else on the same dating app. The teacher then scammed this man by pocketing all the money for herself, but she ended up losing all but 1000 to two other scammers on the same app. What a web of deceit, right? Well, certainly God still reorientates your life and mine today by rebuking our sins. And at times like Jacob, we are rebuked by God and we learn his lessons to us by suffering at the hands of others who are more masterly than ourselves at sin. So how has God dealt with your sin and mine through other sinners? Like Jacob, we are all on a journey with God from, saint, from sinner to saint. Our faith falters and our obedience oscillates. But God is ever faithful to his covenant and ever merciful to his people. And all the promises of God find their yes in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now by his Son, God would reorientate our lives by redeeming us from bondage to sin to live in holiness, bringing us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Jesus reorientates our lives by redeeming us. Right, so firstly, we see that Jesus is God's revelation of his presence and promises. In John chapter 1, verse 51, which we read at the beginning of the service, when Nathanael was coming to Jesus, the Lord said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This time, rather than the ladder or the stairway, Jesus is the one on whom the angels are ascending and descending. This means that Jesus is now the true house of God, where God dwells. He is the true gate of heaven, through whom sinners enter into God's presence. The Lord Jesus is also the fulfillment of God's promises of presence, provision, and protection. Firstly, presence. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. For those of us struggling, particularly during this time because of isolation, the Lord Jesus is with you. He's promised to be with us until the end of the age. He is also the provider in which our God will supply every need according to his riches and glory. He is the good shepherd who protects his sheep and even lays down his life for them. Now, we all know the safe entry check-in system we've been using all these months, right? 
we know that safe entry doesn't really protect us from COVID-19. It is still necessary to inform us, to warn us when someone with COVID was in the same place as us at the same time. But the new Trace Together token and app, we will all need to use very soon from December. Uh, it is slightly more precise. It will also measure proximity and the duration of, of exposure. And yet, even Trace Together doesn't really protect us from, from exposure to COVID, from infection. By his death on the cross, Jesus provides our truest safe entry. We don't have to flash our acknowledgement screen in order to enter God's presence, just as we had to, to enter the church building. We have Jesus' acknowledgement that we are his sheep. We are paid for by his precious blood. And his words to us are, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to myself. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Second, we also see that Jesus is God's help. It's God's help for diagnosing, diagnosing and rebuking our sins. He does so not by being a greater sinner than us, but through his sinless life. If we use trace together to trace our contact with those infected by sin, then we'll be getting alerts all the time, right? Because if you turn to your left and to your right, each one of us is a confirmed infected sinner. We've been infected with the universal disease called sin. And I think that's why the circuit breaker was when a time when many underlying problems between parent and child, between husband and wife, between siblings surfaced because we were sinners in close proximity to each other. So how does Jesus, the Lord, help us with our sins? Well, in the Gospels, we saw how he welcomes sinners who recognize their sin, and he rebukes those who are self-righteous. The Lord who pronounced blessings on the humble and the poor in spirit in, in Matthew 5 was the same Lord who pronounced woes on the self-righteous and religious in Matthew 23. Okay? So we need to recognize that we, we are sinful and we need the Lord Jesus. Otherwise, we fall under his curses and not blessings. Please continue to indulge me with this COVID analogies. I seem to be on a roll here. Right? So Jesus is our ultimate swap test or rapid diagnostic test to show us that you and I are really all infected with sin and we need urgent help. Like swap tests, it can get really uncomfortable when Jesus confronts us and rebukes our sin. But it is absolutely necessary. But the best news of all is that Jesus is also our foolproof vaccine. Jesus is God's provision for redeeming our sins because of his sinlessness. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is God's provision for the redeeming sin. Now, as of now, the final result for the US presidential election, as of now, I think is not announced yet, right? Although all signs seem to point to Biden as the victor, but there are legal challenges by Trump and his supporters. There are false claims of victory. 
It isn't so with God's fight against sin. Jesus has won a decisive victory at the cross and by his resurrection. There can be no challenges and no opposition to his reign. Investigators into the Wakashio disaster found that there were many mysterious irregularities. That unnecessary five-degree adjustment caused the ship to veer off course and resulted in this devastating disaster. Was it due to negligence or was it deliberate? Why didn't they reorientate and change course before it was too late? Well, one theory was that the crew member, they, de they denied it, but one theory was that they were actually having a birthday party with lots of alcohol, and, throw, and so they disregarded all the warning signs. Another stranger theory was that the crew had tried to get closer to land because by us, they need Wi-Fi. Right? They were hoping to get a better mobile or internet signal, in which case they were downplaying the very real danger of shipwreck. Jesus reorientates our lives by revealing himself to us in the word, by rebuking our sins and by redeeming us from death. How should you and I respond? We can choose to be like people who resist him right, by denying his presence, by downplaying the seriousness of sin and disregarding his discipline. Or we can be people who receive him by surrendering in worship, by accepting his redemption by grace, and by following him in this reoriented lives he has set for us. So do we resist his reorientation or do we receive him? Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, there is nothing we can do about our human condition of sin no righteousness of our own to claim. But your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to turn our lives around, to reorientate our lives when he appeared, and by his grace bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, as we wait for our blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So please help us now to live this new, reoriented life that Jesus gives us by your Spirit's enabling and for your name's sake. Amen.